I do think that we have an opportunity to really engage teams in a, in a meaningful way to understand that they have uniqueness that is going to make one approach to leadership in, impossible. Uh, it's always been impossible, but I think people were saying like, that's how we do things here at IBM. That's how we do things here or whatever. Okay. You know, um, and I think the people who didn't subscribe to that were the outliers where I think that the majority of people now have their own unique approach to how they want to get things done. And the companies that are going to be successful now and in the future are going to adapt and listen to their teams and to really give them the psychological safety to say, you know, this is what I think I really, I need this. You know, going back to the dating conversation, right? This is what I need to work because the leaders and organizations that are going to thrive and grow and really shape their future are going to be those organizations that are going to meet the top people where they are, give them things to get done, engage them meaningfully, and respect the fact that they're individuals and human beings who have a full life. Welcome to another episode of the Leading to Fulfillment podcast, where everything we talk about is meant to encourage people-first leaders, empower individuals to achieve fulfillment, and to help your organizations become places people love to work. I'm your host, James Laws, and I have a great show in store for you. My guest for this episode is John Scott Turco. John Scott is an established change maker for global businesses, organizations, and their leaders. He spent the last 25 plus years empowering clients to anticipate and adapt to marketplace opportunities and disruptions so they can move confidently with the ability to succeed today and in the future. John Scott earned his undergraduate degree in international business and marketing and was the valedictory recipient of a master's degree in psychology, both from Manhattan College in New York City. For more than 20 years, he has been serving as an undergraduate and graduate school adjunct professor, instructing students on the subjects of including uh, subjects like international business, leading organizations across cultural and global boundaries, and consumer psychology. In my conversation with John Scott, we discuss what is a courageous work culture, leading through uncertain times, and the great why, navigating the transition from co-located to remote work culture, and the challenges of an always-on culture and the changing landscape of technology. But first, I want to invite you to subscribe and leave a review for the Leading to Fulfillment podcast in your favorite podcast tool. As always, we're on Google. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can watch us over on YouTube. Now, let's jump into my conversation with John Scott Turco. John Scott, thank you so much for joining me on the Leading to Fulfillment podcast today. Great to be here, James. Thank you very much. Uh, to, to get started, I just want everyone to kind of get a feel for who you are, what you're about, what you're doing right now, what you're most excited about. So could you just take a moment and kind of introduce yourself to uh, our listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is John Scott Turco. I'm an organizational psychologist, been working in management consulting and leadership for a very long time, nearly 30 years. And I work primarily with leaders and organizations around the world on creating courageous cultures that drive innovation, promote a real employee engagement and development, and grow bottom line success. So that's at a, at the bottom line of what I do in a macro sense. What I do day to day is really try to get involved with organizations that know that there's a better way to do things. And with the pandemic now, 
uh, hopefully, I've been saying this for over a year, hopefully coming to an end in its influence on our day-to-day uh, real-time, there's an opportunity for organizations to really innovate and to ad- really embrace that learning curve, which we all kind of ran into like a brick wall when we started mm-hmm. this, right? So it's fascinating to me to see organizations that are really being agile and listening to their employees and really helping create these cultures together. And organizations that are very much, you know, this is how we do it. We need everybody back in the office. And not surprisingly, those organizations are having a lot more challenges uh, because employees have options. Absolutely. Uh, we were having a little bit of conversation before we started recording, right? We're talking about like our culture is changing, right? Like whether we like it or not, uh, the, the the tides are shifting and the way, the, the kind of the status quo and the way of doing business even a couple of years ago isn't true today and it most certainly will not be true moving into the future. You talk about this idea of creating a courageous culture, a courageous work culture. I'd love to hear, how do you, what does that mean to you? How do you define a courageous work culture? It's, It's a great question, James. You know, it's interesting. It's different for every organization and within an organization, it's different for each leader and team. So it makes my job really interesting. What I mean by it simply put is, are you looking at ways to do things and ways that you do things in a way that's not afraid of failing? That's not afraid of learning from each other and embracing the opportunity to try things that are new. You know, looking at how we do things at Humanix, which is uh, my company, you know, looking at behavior, looking at experiences, looking at people's unique gifts and putting it into this middle point of courage to say, okay, well, how can we take all of this, synthesize it and do better going forward? So it's a very fascinating piece of information to take from individuals and leaders because oftentimes courage is not something that is rewarded in organizations. You know, there's a a moving risk appetite, uh, as it's put oftentimes, with failure and with innovation. I think they go hand in hand. And I think most organizations that embrace that continuum of trying to say, like, we have to innovate, there's going to be some uh, opportunities to learn. I won't frame them as failures, opportunities to learn, correct, and go forward. And similarly, as, as you've said on your, uh, your episodes previously, you know, there's no inherent right for organizations to have employees. You know, this is a choice. And I often tell many of my students over the years and, and colleagues, you know, well, how's the interview going? Like, you know, how's the opportunity going? Well, you know, like they are looking for me to do this or they're looking for me to do this. And I said, well, what about you? How are you, are you into this? Is this something you want to do? And it seemingly surprises people when I ask this, and I often put it in the frame of dating. I said, you just say yes to everybody who's offering. <laughs> you just walk around the street. <laughs> so, you know, what's in it? You know, how does this? I think it's interesting. There's a sense of altruism that I think is misplaced. And what I mean by that, to be specific, is, you know, it's okay as an employee to think, what's in this for me? You know, it's not the only thing you should think of. But similarly, organizations need to look at how are they engaging their employees. I say this oftentimes, and it's been quoted recently from some friends of mine and clients. You can't demand compliance and call it engagement. And it's like, you know, we need everybody to do this. You know, everyone's here. Good. We have a great employee engagement. Everyone's showing up on Wednesday. Well, okay. Well, they were going to be fired if they didn't show up. So you can't demand something and say, well, no, our employees are very engaged. So, and it's very interesting what you said, because courage is really something that is evolving for organizations and for leaders. And it goes hand in hand with culture, as we've discussed, you and I, previous to this recording. You know, how do you how do you define the culture of your organization? And I work with clients and uh, leaders 
all the time and they refer to their culture as a static point and the static reality many times pre-COVID. And right. as you said, like we are in the midst of changes, frankly, a year ago from right, right now in 2021, April, I had a lot of the same conversations and the world has continued to change and evolve and morph into different things. So your ability to be agile as a leader, your ability to, you know, people often ask me, James, like, what's the most important thing I've heard over the course of my fairly long career thus far to show that someone is going to be a good leader? Like, what's, how can I tell? And I, I really struggle with it, but I said, I answered this and I, I'll stand by it. The willingness for a leader to say, I don't know, mm-hmm. I think is super powerful. And in this time, it's, there's, it's one of the easiest times, I think, for leaders <laughs> to embrace this because no one's got a blueprint for this. Yeah. Last year, this year, next year, this is all new. So there's little that's em- as empowering for organizations and for leaders than to hear their boss say, you know, I'm not sure. Like, what do you think? What does your experience say? How's that this person? Let's ask this person. And you know, I think in the past, it may have been seen as uh, inaccurately seen as a sign of weakness to ask, you know, for opinion and for feedback and interesting perspectives. I think it's quite the opposite. I think it shows a tremendous amount of uh, trust in your teams. Uh, it shows a, a tremendous amount of confidence in the fact that you can synthesize this information and make decisions. And the more people, um, you know, the more you listen to your people, obviously, the more they're going to feel engaged and heard. Not to say, you know, it sounds so remedial to say this, but it is it is still an elusive reality for many organizations and leaders. There's so much good stuff in, in, in everything that you just said. Uh, some things that I was thinking about as you were talking was, you know, this idea true too, right? Like the courting relationship of, uh, of uh, someone seeking work and someone looking to fill a role or a position within their company that I, one of the things I've, I'm constantly coaching people is don't, you know, when I was growing up to get a job, this is the way you did it. You got as many resumes or as many applications as you could, and you filled out as many as you could, and then you followed up as often as you could until you just basically beat somebody down into hiring you. That was that was the approach when I was younger. But that the, the shotgun approach is gone. Right now, what you get, ha, get and, and it's not what you have to do, it's what you get to do. You get to say, what kind of organization do I want to work for? What are the values that that organization has? What is the mission and the purpose of that organization? You get to learn about that. You pick four to five organizations that you feel passionate about and you learn about their culture and then you help them see you on their team. And it becomes this kind of give and take of, hey, you know, I always say this, my company, my company culture in a way is a product that I am developing for my team. It is the selling proposition that makes them want to buy into this organization and give of their time and invest it into what we're doing. And if I don't spend the time on my product, if I don't spend the time being flexible and adaptable to the things that are happening in the world around, nobody's going to buy my product. No team members going to want to come. Yeah, that's a critic. I mean, you brought up so many great points just there. You know, I was working once with the bank internationally and um, their top 300 or so leaders, I had them for three days. And I was walking through the streets of the city we're in somewhere in Europe. And I honestly forget where. And there was they need to get cash. And their bank was right there. And I said, well, just stop over here. And I said, well, I don't bank there. I'm like, you don't bank at your bank? And this is a C, this is an N minus one. This is a senior, senior person, um, if not even higher, actually. And I was shocked. And he said, you seem surprised. I'm like, well, yeah. Like, 
Mm-hmm. It's your bank. Like, you know, it, it, I found it fascinating. And it said, if you're, if you're a suspect or if you're voicing your dissatisfaction with something in a way that your team is going to see that you're not banking at your bank, um, oh, yeah. I find that an interesting cultural reality that you're creating for yourself. And as you said, you know, culture is, is a living, breathing, evolving reality. I think many leaders today, literally today in, in, in April of 22, that we're speaking, they refer to their culture in the present tense when they're really referring to things from years ago. And I said, I need you to stop referring to this as a static reality. Your culture is being developed right now. Your decisions, behaviors, actions are all informing your culture right now, who you're keeping, who you're losing during your team. You know, and I said this to someone just before our call today, I said, you know, you are going to drive everybody with the option to leave, to leave. So I said, if you look at the simple Pareto rule, you know, you're getting 80% of your results from 20% of your top performers, you lose two or 3% of those top performers. What's the consequential impact to your business? It's dramatic. So I think the tough thing for most leaders is they were following, whether it be a literal or otherwise de facto blueprint, like this is how leaders behave. There's no blueprint now. There's no, no, there's no manual that someone's going to say, you know, how do you handle a pandemic where we're not in the office together for a year or two years? And, you know, we, I, I reframed this in my, one of my LinkedIn posts, the great resignation I hear, I, I reframed it in, into the great why. More and more people are asking, well, why? We need you in the office, X, Y, Z. Well, why? Um, I have many clients, many clients who previous to the pandemic were dealing with employees who wanted to work from home one or two days a month. And I can remember a, a C-suite executive saying to me in person, there's no way they can do their job at home. It's not possible. They cannot do their jobs at home. Guess what? Everyone did their job at home. In this particular case, better and more efficiently than they did in the office. And now we've evolved to this point where most are going back to some type of office environment. And the people who had more time with their families, spent less time and money commuting, had other ways of paying attention to their flow in terms of their life, health, kids, work, home, whatever other interests they have. And they're really genuinely saying, okay, well, why? If you're telling me that everything has been at least good, if not better, please explain to me why I need to be in the office full time every day. And I have some CEOs that have said, okay, well, we'll make a concession. We'll give people a work from home one day a month. I literally laughed in the face. I said, are you kidding me? So it's fascinating to me because I have leaders who were very anti-work at home saying, well, my team is doing great. We talk online, we meet in person, you know, we're, we're getting this good flow. Mandating people in the office um, is something that I think is going to drive a lot of employees to find other opportunities. You know, it's interesting. I have a lot of a, a teams say, well, you know, we have this uh, office, we just renovated this office. I said, with all due respect to it, your fixed CapEx is of no concern to your employees. You know, it, yeah. honestly, I said, I don't really care. You know, I've, in, I'm in New York City at the moment. And I work uh, in a few different major cities around the world. And the office is the situation is the same everywhere, which is we invested all this money in this space and we invest all this money in this space. And then I forget which it is, if it's Deloitte or Pricewaterhouse that is fully remote globally now. And I said, think about this. If one of the, the biggest accounting firms in the world has gone fully remote, don't you think they crunched those numbers? <laughs> yeah, right. I would I would venture a guess that they you know they've done the homework 
uh, from a fixed capex perspective and other perspectives, and saying, okay, well, listen, we need you to get your job done. Are there cultural advantages to people being in the same office? Sure. Are there cultural disadvantages for people being in the office all the time? Absolutely. But for me personally, when I look around and I see my friends and colleagues and frankly, my children who are recent college grads saying, you know, wait, they want us to come into the office. Like I'm getting so much more done. I'm like, I'm at my desk, you know, doing work. If I take a break, I'll go to the gym at lunch. I'm back. I'm, you know, I work more hours at home and I have much more of a balance in my life. So please explain to me, as I said, it's not the great resignation in my terms. It's the great why. Please explain why. I, I, I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, when I, you know, story from my, you talked about too, like cultures and, and, and creating an atmosphere where people are not afraid to fail, right? Because if you, people aren't failing, then they're not taking re- hard risks, which means they're not pushing your organization forward anyway. So right. you might as well allow failures, allow people to try new things and, and courageous things. Well, right at the beginning of all of this in 2019 my company was fully co-located in office. I started it because that's what I knew. I had grown up in this kind of culture of an office culture. And so when I started this business, I created an office and I loved it from a cultural standpoint. There was some culture benefits, right? There's there's something about the connection of being face-to-face with people and getting around the water cooler or getting around the boardroom table and solving a problem face-to-face in the moment. Yeah, there's some really cool things about that. But in 2019, we acquired a business and their team was all over the world. And so I couldn't very well expect them to move to Cleveland, Tennessee. And so we decided, well, then perhaps we need to consider remote. And the reason I resisted it is honestly was fear. I was afraid. I didn't have the capability of leading a remote team. I wasn't certain about and wasn't confident in my ability. I knew I could do an in-office team because I, I knew that culture, sure. but I wasn't sure about a remote culture. So in 2019, right before this pandemic and everything, and everyone was forced to go remote, we made the conscious decision to go remote. And it was there were some painful parts of that. Right. But right. what I determined is something you just talked about. I determined I didn't like being in the office. I thought I loved being in the office because it was what I'd, I'd, the only thing I'd known. I'd never really tasted remote work before. But now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm able to work out when I am best and have the most energy to work out. I'm able to spend time with my family when, I'm able, when it's best. And I'm actually able to work when I'm best at my work, which was usually before I'd even get into the office. It's early morning is when I'm most creative. I'm the sharpest. And so I'm able to actually do my best work and honestly work less because I can get more done when Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with that statement. I think, and I think the proof is already unfolding for certain organizations and leaders. You know, I've had many friends and colleagues and, and, and frankly, the C-suite also saying to me kind of on the down, like, look, listen, if something opens up like closer to where I live, like, I'm happy that they're going to, you know, so I'm like, okay. So I'm dealing with them, their teams, and they're like ready to, to they're understanding but there is again. I think it's fear based. To your point, I think it's just like, wait, this is the, this is the manual. We always do this. This is how we do things. I don't, uh, now you're telling me people can work whenever they want, whenever they're making sense to work. Now, again, as I mentioned to you previous to our, our recording, you know, I work across at the moment like eight time zones. So you know, my work is done when it needs to get done. My calls happen when they need to happen. So, you know, if I have a friend call me at, you know, eight, nine o'clock at night and I'm on do not disturb, they know because I'm sleeping because I have calls starting at midnight with Dubai or, or Hong Kong or wherever. So, 
I think to me, like I've embraced this, which may be a little more natural for me, frankly, because of my work across time zones and with leaders in different areas of the world. So based on where I am in the world, it's quite fascinating because if I'm teaching a course that's based in New York that takes place at 5 p.m., I know if I'm in Dubai, it's going to be a late night for me. Um, Similarly, you know, when clients ask me if I can join a call, pretty much unless I have something booked at that time, it doesn't matter what time it is where I am locally. Right. So those are choices I made to run my business, you know, nine years ago or so when I began my business. So um, I like that, too. And I, I just for people listening. Right. That's not the only way. Like one way is just to simply embrace that you you work on a 24 hour clock and you may have meetings at any of those hours and you you fit in your sleep, and your schedule and your personal time. You, you integrate that. And that is a way. And the other way is kind of the way I kind of do it, too, is we've just gone so asynchronous that right. it's like. Don't I? I work when I work. I have meetings when I have meetings, and if there isn't crossover. Then we do it in text. Like we have conversations and we dialogue. And if we can find overlap, we'll find overlap. We have very few face-to-face meetings. Honestly, most of our communication is written communication. We solve most of our problems that way. So there are multiple ways of approaching this. There, you don't have to. It's not one size fits all. And I think that's. I think the struggle that many corporations have had, many businesses have had leading up to, as you say, the great why, uh, is is they haven't realized like there's many ways to solve this problem. And, and I love the I love this idea of the why. I just talked about it in a previous episode. Uh, the, the, the kind of the five why framework, right? It's like, well, we need to get everyone back in the office. Well, well, why? Well, because they're, they, I, we think they'll be more productive. Why? Well, because I can see them in their seat working. What is, why? Like you keep asking that until you get down to the smallest portion and you realize, oh, we just have bad logic. Like our reasoning. Exactly it. Yes. And that's exactly it. Right. I think, and I don't fault people for that logic because it's all we've ever known. Right. So and I think that perhaps you and I had a little bit of a head start with this because of our business realities. But for someone who's been more traditional, like I commute to the city, I do this for, you know here, and then I leave my desk. And then I can say, oh, yeah, I've seen James. James was in the office today. He was busy all day today. Now, you could have been like shopping on eBay. I had no idea. But whatever. If you're at your computer, then I presume you're busy, right? So I find the whole thing quite fascinating. You know, And, and every day I learn something new. And it's frankly part of what's hardwired into me. I, you know, I'm a, I love to learn. So I'm always asking the questions why. And contrary to this present reality, I always like to try to practice more and more just being quiet and listening. There's invaluable information that comes from it. And I think leaders often has this have this reflex to say, you know, I'm the leader. I have to take control of every meeting. And I said, just listen, you're, you're going to learn far more if you just sit back and invite your team to contribute to things that they know and have them have psychological safety. You know, this is a huge issue. You know, um, I worked with a team um, a couple of years back and the leader, the CEO had fired six people in the past six months um, who brought him ideas that he didn't like. <laughs> and he said in the meeting, I need ideas that you're my top 200 people. And uh, and I'm looking around going like, is he realized what he's saying? So I had a head mic at the time. I clicked it on. And, uh, you know, one of the benefits of being a consultant, I can, I can say things like this. And I said, I'm going to go ahead and have to call BS on that statement. So everyone was like... <laughs> So he looked at me, he goes, you're the only person who can speak to me like this. And I said, let me ask you, what happened to the last six people who brought you ideas you didn't like? And he stopped a second. He got a little red. And afterwards he came over. He goes, I can't believe I'm paying you to kick my ass. And he said, listen, I'm trying to have you be real with your team. This is a real, this opportunity for a real conversation. You know, so if you want people to bring you ideas, they have to have the safety, psychological safety to say, if he doesn't like it, 
I'm not going to have a negative consequence. I'm just trying to be innovative and take all the symptoms. There's educated guesses. There's bad ideas too that, you know, that display a lack of understanding. I'm not saying those need to be embraced. However, we're in a point now where there's so many new data points coming out. You know, I have my first meeting uh, in the metaverse coming up next week. You know, there's layer upon layer of like Web 3.0, metaverse, like virtual uh, work, remote work, leadership shifts. You know, how leading in the, in the digital age of virtual work, hybrid work, the metaverse is we're going to require totally different skills, totally different skills. So how do you encourage your teams? How do you provide feedback if they're not going to say, hey, uh, James, let me you know, come into my office for a second? Well, I, I literally can do that. We can have a sidebar. We can have a conversation. You know, I think that there's leaders are showing themselves very quickly to either be adapting or really being hardline. And I do think that the leaders that are really steadfast, say, I need everyone back in the office, they're going to attract a certain kind of employee that I think may not be the employees that they need to succeed going forward. You say this in your podcast, I've heard in different episodes where, you know, it's not about just thriving or growing. It's, It's literally about surviving at the most elemental point, you know, this is how you've done business. Okay. Your teams, your leaders, your clients, your suppliers, your supply, all the different factors, everyone is working differently everywhere. You know, I'm not sure if you've been in the market for a car, but you know, the car business is hysterical. It's insane right now, you know, and I mean it everywhere from the dealerships and the chips that aren't there controlling parts of the car that ideally they should be. Um, all the way to Stuttgart. You know, I have clients in in the automotive uh, industry in Stuttgart in Germany, and they just laid off a bunch of people and their business is shifting dramatically as well. So now granted, you know, I just mentioned to you that, you know, a family member in the hospital, certain jobs you can't do remotely (laughs) to physically be there doing it. And most of the jobs that I've worked with, you can though. Um, So it begs the question, right, James? It begs the question, like, what's the culture that you are trying to create? Because People refer to cultures in the, in the present tense when they're really referring to pre-COVID culture. It is oftentimes unrecognizable from the cultures that we have presently and that we're going to have going forward. So the opportunity, and I really do see it this way, and I, I, I've, I say this with, with some trepidation, you know, the gifts, because there are some gifts of this time, in addition to all the tragedy, the gifts of this are really, I think we've accelerated our curve by 10 years easily in terms of new ways of working, new ways of innovating, new ways of leading, um, hybrid work. You know, we, we were promised this was going to free us up when it came out. All it's done is made us be at work <laughs> all the time. You know, so I saw a graphic recently which said, you know, um, work in the office. It was like commute, lunch, meetings, work. And then it was all broken down, you know, and then work from home. It was just one color. It just said work. <laughs> So yeah, I, I I was talking to one of my business partners and we were making kind of a joke of what it was like kind of moving into Slack for communication, right? So a lot of people use Slack for remote teams for communication. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a decent tool for that. But what we found out was what had ended up happening is we lost the ability to leave the office and go home because our our office was in our hands mm-hmm. all the time. It's like th- Slack is great because now I can be in the office even when I'm at my kid's baseball game. Well, that's not the <laughs> that's not the culture. Yeah, it's not we're trying uh, to create. Yeah. And I love what you said about psychological safety. 
you hear it a lot. A lot of people talk about it and they're like, I just, well, how do I create an organization that is psychologically safe? And first rule of thumb is how do you respond to your team? You pointed it out, right? You're in this conference room and you say you're waiting for good ideas, but you just fired the last six people (laughs) who gave you ideas. Well, you created psychological unsafety. (laughs) Like you have created an environment that's not safe. When people fail, how do you respond to that? Do you respond with, oh my God, why did you make that decision? Or Or do you calm them down and say, hey, hey, hey. Mistakes get made. It's not a big deal. This isn't going to ruin us. Don't worry about it. Let's talk about it. Why did we make the decisions that we made? What were some of the warning signs? Let's talk through it. Use these opportunities to coach and teach and show them that failure is absolutely not just possible. It's actually always – we always say this. This is kind of a statement in our company. Failure is always an option. Yeah. It's always an option to fail. Yeah. I have a, a friend of mine from years ago who had a company called The Failure Club. (laughs) <laughs> and they promoted like contests that and the only way they accepted the, the proposal is there was a very high probability of failure. So I found it fascinating. And I think, you know, kind of informs some of my perspective in the sense that, you know, if you're always looking to stay, you know, it's funny, you mentioned a few different things that reminded me. Um, my first job postgraduate school was back in time pre-email <laughs> and pre-cell phones. And I would call the office every two weeks to check in on my interview status. Um, I would write a physical letter and mail it in the mail on the alternating weeks. And I did this for months. And they called me five or six months later into the process. And they said, we created a job for you. It's like amazing. Because we figured out you would not stop bothering us until we hired you. And I said, pretty fair assessment. Yeah. So it worked. So I always tell my students, there's a fine line between persistent and annoying, and you're going to have to be on either side of that line, uh, you know, kind of testing your waters. I think it's also been fascinating to see how decisions are made when it comes to uh, these, you know, these persistence versus annoying, right? It's very, very fascinating in this digital world where we have hybrid work. And now I'm, I'm calling, I'm hitting you on Slack. And then if you don't answer, Am I calling you? And then I have a, a CFO client of mine um, in Europe who said, you know, he called me one day and he said, uh, I can't get I can't get James on the phone. I, I know this is why I need people in the office. And I said, well, when did you call him? And he said, well, I called him um, Sunday. I said, OK. I said, what time? He goes, what, what, does, what difference does that make? I know he's home. I said, what time did you call him? She, he goes, about 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, come on. I was like, as he said it, I think he realized how absurd it was. Uh-huh. And I said, I'm not saying you don't have thoughts and things and information, but you know, I also realized with some of my clients and, and previous to my business, when I was working for someone, the CEO of my company would send me emails at 11 or 12 at night whenever she got home and was like, you know, kind of her clear, it was a good time for her to work. My being a good employee at that moment initially had me, responding to them at, you know, 11, 12 o'clock until I realized that in their mind, that was creating a dialogue. Now Now we were, now we were in it one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, two o'clock. Holy man. It was like, so I realized that moment I had to just see the emails, write my response and set it to auto send at eight or nine in the morning because I couldn't initiate a dialogue at at midnight, one, two, three, four. There was no sleep happening. Um, So, I think that, you know, these tools that we use, you mentioned Slack, you know, I laugh. I have a friend of mine uh, who I can remember in the late 2000s before 2010, you know, was resistant to a 
a smartphone, you know, as Blackberries went to iPhones, went to Androids, you know, he, he only wanted a phone like that when he was out of the office on business, like at conferences or something. And he goes, I'm just going to leave it in the office and I'm not using it. I said, okay, it's going to be interesting. So it is kind of fascinating. I also have students of mine, which I find interesting too, that they said, well, you know, I was interviewing and, and the interviewer was criticizing me. I said, really, for what? He goes, well, what does he expect? You know, I have emails coming in. And I, this is students. Oh, they're like, they're, I said, wait, were you on your phone in an interview? And they said, well, you know, everyone's on their phones. You know, he was on his phone. I said, well, he's interviewing you. I said, please. I said, I don't believe I have to say this to you guys, but like, shut your phones off. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, so, you know, th- those are the cultural things that we've created in the old culture, right? That has, you talked about, like, that was, that was before Cult, where you are now and the decisions you're making now is the culture that you're creating. Yeah. And, and I, you, you talk about, you know, making the call on Sunday. I just had that recently. Uh, on Sunday, I had this idea for my communications team. And so I wrote up a message and I drafted it and I held it until Monday. And then I posted it because I didn't want somebody to see that and think that I've had any kind of idea, even though we've already kind of set a culture that says, hey, I may post something and I don't expect a response for X amount of time. So don't even worry about it. But I purposely held it for that exact same reason that you talked about. And here's what I had to learn as a leader. If I have to interrupt somebody, I don't even care if it's in the workday because we have a flexible schedule. There is – I have no – I have no way of knowing or expecting that anybody might be working at the same time that I am working. I have no expectation of that. There probably is some crossover, but I don't know. So when I send a message, I have no expectation that I'm going to get an immediate response because we've already set that culture that you may not be working then. But here's what I've determined. If I get frustrated because I sent something, I had some idea, I had something I wanted to talk to somebody about in that moment, and I can't get a hold of somebody – that's bad planning on my part. That's not their failure. That's my failure for making that more urgent, more than it needs to be. We all know this, right? We're all slaves to the urgent instead of the important. And we, and so I've just got to say like, listen, I have ideas all the time. That's why I run a company. Like, that's why I'm an entrepreneur. I have tons of ideas. And sometimes I just need to keep them to myself so that I don't get everyone else thinking that they're going to chase the urgent over what I've all, we've already determined and classified as the important. <laughs> I've come to realize, I know it's interesting about that observation is I've had the same conversation where I said, I don't expect you to be on when I'm on, but I also know how I was when I was much younger in oh, my yeah. career. And I would be like, really? Okay. Well, I'm going to show James that I'm all over it and I'm going to be responding whenever it is. Yeah. So I have to force myself similarly to like send things at times where I know they'll get to it at a you know, more reasonable expected business hours. And if I have a a brain blast at, you know, 1130 on a Sunday morning. I'm not expecting to convene a team, you know, at that moment. It is interesting because as we go through this, and and, and again, I love the name of the, the podcast, including fulfillment. You know, I say to people all the time, I, I had a conversation with a stranger the other day, which my kids are often mortified, uh, but have come to expect it from me. Someone next to us was sitting, having a meal and he goes, you know, my friend was in a car accident and he was uh, worried about work and, he hates his job and he was so worried about getting in trouble for missing work. And he was in the hospital, like laid up in the hospital. And the kid said, and I say kid, uh, showing my age, he was probably 30. And he said, um, he goes, if I'm ever in a car accident, guys, you know, make sure that when I get out of the hospital that I change this job because I hate this job. So I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And I saw my kids, they were having lunch. They're like, and I was like, I said, I said, I'm sorry. 
to jump in. Like, why are you waiting for a potentially catastrophic accident <laughs> to switch a job that you hate? I'm sorry. I mean, I think there's infinite jobs to have, no matter what your location is, especially now as we discuss this. You know, um, I have friends working in every part of the world who work in every part of the world. You know, it's the 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 market that we're in now is so rapidly changing. Jobs that exist now um, will not in the near future. I think I read something. Uh, we have something in one of my old uh, intro videos which said the the top twenty jobs in twenty thirty uh, don't even exist yet. Yep. You know, and this yeah. was going back a couple of years, but I'm certain that's probably even more true today. So. How are you responding? How are you developing cultures? Because as you said, and I, I need to go back to this, but it's really necessary. Your culture is being created every day by every decision, every behavior, every interaction. That's your culture. It's living, breathing, dynamic. It's not this, uh, you know, it's not a piece of paper with like, this is our culture. You know, it's on our mission statement. It's, it's constantly being uh, honed and evolved and uh, massaged. I think also, you know, we look at this, I had many clients over the past two years who, to your point about in-person versus versus virtually, they realized, you know, let's have a call and they invite the whole team on the call. And then let's have a sidebar and they invite some people on the sidebar. Then they have another sidebar to get things done. They're getting things done. Then it occurred to them at some point, a couple of weeks down the road, like, hey, like, you know, where's Bob? You know, we haven't included Bob. And in, I'm making up the name, uh, obviously. <laughs> where's We haven't included Bob. Like, you know, and then I, people started to realize, like, you know, what does Bob do? <laughs> like if he's not if he's not in these decision making action oriented things, so I think there's been many jobs that have been made obsolete in the past two years because while I may see James in the office, I may have not really known like what exactly are you responsible for delivering. And there's a lot of people in the office I found that were like taking things, and their job was to take things and, and move them over here. And in this very transactional culture we you know we've evolved to in some ways where we have meetings to address specific action items take action take ownership and deliver there's not a lot of conversation that's going on that's just conversation right there's not a lot of water cooler eat right. lunch conversations uh, because and i think this is probably a positive because when james is done with this meeting he's going to clang up the call he can run to the gym he can do whatever he needs to do i'm not looking to have you know a virtual lunch you know, with my team necessarily uh, on a regular basis. This is an ongoing issue, right? We need, we want our culture back. We want the team together. I get it. I mean, I'm a, you know, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. We both weren't very interested in conversation and people. And it doesn't mean it's going to look like what it looked like previously. So how can we help shape this so that people are excited? I mean, people are much more fulfilled in their day to day um, and those that aren't, and it's fascinating, right? I read a study recently, I think it was McKinsey or Deloitte that put a study out a few weeks ago that said, you know, Generation X, uh, which I'm a car carrying member of, is, is far more interested in, in working remotely than, than millennials or boomers. And I was like, that's wild. Like, why is that? And it's, I talked to my kids and it's funny, like they love the flexibility, but they also, they're much more reliant on, reliance is too strong a word, they're much more entertained by the dynamics of interpersonal kind of like these are new people and I finished college now I'm working and now I work with this person and they live here and we're going to go to happy hour. We're going to do this. You know, like I have enough things going on that I'm not looking to have a protracted work day necessarily. Um, so I think that 
it's very fascinating to see how this is evolving because it's it's going very fast. Then let's just layer on top of this Web three and and metaverse. I mean, it's it's adding a whole other layer of this. You know, where people are going to be able to look around and be in in an office where people are building copies of their physical office spaces in the metaverse. So that you know, James is going to show up to the office and they're going to he's, you're going to be able to look and see. Bob at his desk over there. <laughs> you know, this is so fascinating to me, you know, and, and I can say this as an older person, uh, you know, I remember having a meeting, you know, my company back then, um, if, and I use that term so specifically, if we were going to get the internet. And now for <laughs> younger people hearing and watching this, that must terrify them. And I'll ask you to do the same thing. Like, are you fully ready to embrace Web 3.0 and the metaverse and how that's going to work? Because this is the, the only thing I can compare in terms of seismic changes and how the world operates is going on, you know, it's happening as we speak right now. So I do think that we have an opportunity to really engage teams in a, in a meaningful way to understand that they have uniqueness that is going to make one approach to leadership in, impossible. Uh, it's always been impossible, but I think people were saying like, that's how we do things here at IBM. That's how we do things here. Whatever. Okay. You know, um, and I think the people who didn't subscribe to that were the outliers, where I think that the majority of people now have their own unique approach to how they want to get things done. And the companies that are going to be successful now and in the future are going to adapt and listen to their teams and to really give them the psychological safety to say, you know, this is what I think I really, I need this. You know, going back to the dating conversation, right? This is what I need to work. Because the leaders and organizations that are going to thrive and grow and really shape their future are going to be those organizations that are going to meet the top people where they are, give them things to get done, engage them meaningfully, and respect the fact that they're individuals and human beings who have a full life. You know, it's it's fascinating. You know, it reminds me of something from my old recruitment days where I was recruiting for a marketing person and the the hiring manifesto back then was like you're getting a heart, you want to get a MBA in marketing someone with an undergrad in marketing who worked in marketing, who clerked in marketing, who interned in marketing. And I said something once, I'm like, you know, I really would rather get like a history major who like, you know, lived in Japan for two years and then came back and did product marketing somewhere, then decided they were going to go back at 28 years old to get their MBA. Like they bring so much more of a rich experience to it. And I had to sell that idea back then, you know, in, <laughs> in, in the mid nineties, you know, and, it was a revolutionary idea. And I remember hiring someone who marketed cigarettes, believe it or not, to come and market cosmetics. And, and the pushback I got at the time was, you know, she markets cigarettes. I said, yeah, and she's super successful and brilliant. And if she could market cigarettes, how hard do you think it's going to be for her to market lipsticks? And, you know, <laughs> I said, you're not dealing with any kind of social stigma of any dramatic nature in that regard. So I think that there's a, a, a propensity of leaders to follow what was always done, whether they admit it or not. I think most leaders want to seem to think that they're innovative, but they're doing the same thing everyone's always done. And it's impossible to sustain that going forward or anymore. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's a, that's a good note to kind of leave people with to think about, right. As they're, as they're listening, as they finish this episode that they, they kind of consider like, it's easy 
to stick with the status quo. It's it's it, we want to think that we're innovative, but the true true leaders that are going to push their organizations into the future are the ones that are flexible, adaptable, and as you said, are listening to their teams. They're not just listening to all of the leadership gurus who came before right. them, and there is plenty to learn from all of that. But they are learning from their teams because the best people to tell you how to lead them well are the people that you're leading. Uh, John Scott, thank you for a fantastic conversation. If anyone wants to get a hold of you and learn more about you, how can they do that? Um, You can always connect with me and look me up on LinkedIn, of course. Uh, My name is fairly unique, but I'm sure the spelling will be in the uh, notes. As well as my company is Humanix, H-U-M-I-N-X, which has come simply from my favorite quote, which is uh, Roosevelt's man in the arena, that's the in. Uh, so it's the human, H-U-M, the I-N, and then X because it's just everywhere, you know, being able to do this in a global scale. So humanx, H-U-M-I-N-X.com is my site. And I appreciate your time very much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, John Scott. What a great conversation and a big thank you to John Scott for engaging on the challenges of ever, our ever-changing work culture. Everything we mentioned, including a full transcript of the show, is available over on our website, and you can access it anytime by visiting leadingtofulfillment.com slash 024. The world of work is changing, whether corporate CEOs want to admit it or not. This doesn't mean that working in the office is ever completely going away, but more and more remote opportunities will see the balance of power shift dramatically. In my company, remote work has given us an incredible chance to embrace flexibility and enable fulfillment. Despite its challenges, working from home has brought out the best in all of us and our company, but allowing people to pack up their desks and head home is barely scratching the surface. Before you can reap the benefits of working from home, you have to properly support it. So here are six ways to do just that. One, invest in thorough training. Let me be clear. Training isn't suffering because of remote work. Companies have been neglecting training for a long, long time before the world made the shift to work from home. But lack of training in a remote environment has bigger consequences than in co-located businesses. It's harder to pick up valuable information in passing, and it takes more intention to connect with colleagues who can can assist you. Uh, For the most effective remote working environments, we say train well, train often. Number two, create clear documentation. Clear, thorough, and easily accessible documentation is vital for remote work. This is especially true in asynchronous environments, but it is also important for remote companies that stick to a universal schedule. Without documentation, workers have to rely on colleagues or leaders for information, which can become disruptive. Document, document, document. Your processes, procedures, your project statuses and vision, your assignments and progress, you can't over-document. Number three, encourage frequent communication. Communication doesn't have to suffer in remote work environments, and asynchronous communication doesn't mean a lack of communication. For remote businesses to succeed well, for any business to succeed, great communication is paramount. Number four, establish mentor programs. Mentorship is, is hugely helpful in career and personal development, but many companies assume relation, mentor-mentee relationships will happen naturally. On the contrary, they require intention and facilitation. Number five, ask for feedback. We are all human and fallible, 
and we're all going to make mistakes. Remote work is still brand new for many companies, so it's inevitably going to be a learning process. Even if you implement every single bit of advice about remote work, there will be challenges. That's why I recommend periodically asking for feedback. It takes guts to ask where you can improve, but it's a vital resource to improving your work from home culture and processes. Number six, and lastly, celebrate wins. Celebrating success may come more naturally in co-located environments. You can cater a lunch, give a speech, or bask in the palpable energy of a communal win. Work from home makes this challenging, but don't skip celebration simply because it takes a bit more thought. Regardless of how you do it, celebrate the wins. It's relatively easy to do and endlessly rewarding in a remote environment that could feel isolating otherwise. I can already see the self-fulfilling prophecy. Companies that cling to co-located work won't offer the right support or tools for remote work. Unsurprisingly, work from home won't be as successful for them. And they'll no doubt lose out to some very talented, very dedicated workers. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode. Until then, may your businesses be successful as you lead your teams to fulfillment.